All right. Good evening. Welcome back to Mentors on Fire podcast, where we're talking tonight to my good friend, Dan DeGrice. Dan, how are you doing tonight? I am doing great. How are you? I'm fantastic. And tonight we have with us Rob Persley. Mike Pence is not going to be able to make it tonight, but uh, Rob is, is with us. And Dan is coming to us. That is not a Zoom filter. It's actually Dan in, in the basement. Not the doghouse, but the basement. <laughs> yeah. This is what I get for 30 years in the fire service and working two full-time jobs for the better part of those 30 years. I get wow. stuck in the basement. <laughs> yeah. But, but I've, learned, have... I, I've learned happy wife, happy, happy life. Happy life. We don't have basements where I am, so I'm jealous. I wish I had a place to put all my stuff. Yeah, uh, when you're that close to the water, you're you're underwater. <laughs> that's correct. We, we don't dig that deep. So before we get started with Dan diving into his, his story, uh, I want to be sure to thank our sponsor, which I forgot to do at the beginning of our previous episode, Command Consulting LLC, Solutions That Work. What does command consulting do, Dan? You're probably asking. Are you asking that of yourself right now? I'm. I'm. I'm waiting to hear more. <laughs> they do who? electrification, shared services, and emergency services, pro- professional development programs, things like that. Really, the hot topic for 2023 is electrification and microgrids. So. Um, if you are looking to in, install or if you're looking to utilize electric vehicles, EVs, and you need a way to charge them, uh, uh, clearly I'm not the expert in this category, uh, but a microgrid is, is something that you would use to charge those electric vehicles. That's the, the real specialty of Command, Consult, uh, Command Consulting LLC. Rob, did I miss anything about Command Consulting LLC for 2020? It says 2023, but I think it's more of a hot topic for 2024. Would you agree? Yeah, I think it, it's it's becoming more and more uh, prevalent uh, in emergency services, especially uh, looking at uh, electric vehicles. Um, the microgrids is still something that's uh, kind of new to people. Um, we spend a lot of time explaining it and but uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely becoming more and more of a topic. Fantastic. So for those of you who don't know Dan DeGrice, Dan is in the Chicagoland area where he recently retired as a battalion chief. When did you retire, Dan? So I'm going to say 15% ago, but that actually equates to four years ago because we get the um, increase every year in the first 13 months, we get a 6% raise. So a little over four years ago, November 3rd, but 15% ago. How's that? You get colas where you are. Yes. Yeah. And we get cold too in, in the Midwest yeah, cold we- and colas. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we had the, the pleasure and the honor of having Governor Chris Christie uh, remove the COLAs from uh, the public safety pension. So thank you to Governor Christie for, for doing that. 
Yeah, a non-firefighting individual. That kind of reminds me of um, Rostenkowski, who removed the or put the Windfall Act in there for all of us that paid into Social Security for the better part of our life and other jobs and reduced mm-hmm. our Social Security benefits. Thank you, yeah. Rostenkowski. Rob, is there anybody you'd like to thank out of Ohio? <laughs> no, actually, I'm pretty good. Uh, the The guy that I wanted to thank the most has long since uh, moved on, uh, Governor Kasich. Uh, he was the one that went after uh, collective bargaining back in, uh, what would that have been, 2008, 2009, um, Senate Bill 5. But, uh, yeah, he's been replaced with uh, – Governor uh, Mike DeWine, who I have a lot of respect for. Um, I I thought the governor did a really good job of leading the state through the COVID crisis. And um, so, no, I don't have any any I'm going to thank right now. Okay. (laughs) Well, what we want to do is hear from Dan. We want to hear about your story, your origin story, as I like to say, lessons learned, and see if we can pass along some nuggets for people that are paying attention to. So the podcast listening in, Dan, you started your career in Chicago. You did your entire career with Chicago Fire Department, correct? I did. You started when? When did you get hired? 89. 89. Yeah. Yeah, interesting story because I had no intention of becoming a firefighter. What was your Uh, intention? I wanted to be in a business. And then in college, when I couldn't get better than a D in microeconomics, <laughs> my my professor, my, my uh, school counselor said, hey, when are you going to get your head out of your rear end and figure out what you're going to do? And then I got into psychology because I'm like, ah, how can I get a four-year degree? And then when I got out, I tried to get to become a state police officer, FBI agent, Secret Service, CIA. I'm still waiting to hear back from the CIA. They might be outside right now. The Secret <laughs> Service said, "Secret Service said thanks, but no thanks," because I had no military background. State police passed me up, offered me the job five years after I got on the fire department. Is that right? And I and I failed the FBI exam twice. I, I'm not exactly sure how, because they won't tell me. So what's happening right now? Pay no attention to the woman behind the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> You, you <laughs> Victoria, is that is that she can't hear you because I'm in the headphones? But I have people look at that, just like yeah. that, a part a partition. <laughs> that's hilarious. Is that the best or what? We love that. Her. Yeah, that's going to cost me about eight hundred dollars from a union stand. Look at that! She shut the light. boom. That boom. is ingenuity. We should have started. Let's start all over again. Welcome. No, no. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. That is great. I love that. Yeah. Is that the best or what? Yeah, I think we should hire her. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but so I, I took the test in 85. I was playing. I was uh, in college playing uh, Division three ball. I'm not a great athlete, but I was playing ball. And Football? The, yeah. And I took the test, and I thought I completely bombed it. Uh, I took it with 45,000 other people, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to get on the department because just to give you my attention span then and now is that, um, you know, we had uh, the obstacle course. We had uh, body drag, all these different things, right? And, of course, me, I'm in the back 
where there's about 40 people and I'm kind of looking around in the uh, fire kit and I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. And I'm like, look at the lights and look at the grouse. And oh, no, no. <laughs> next thing I know, I, I hear my name and I'm like, yeah, what can I do for you? Well, you're first in the obstacle course. And I'm like, uh, can you run over that just one more time? Nope. Go. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh my gosh. So I had to figure it out and I totally screwed it up. But Luckily, I still landed 1,200 out of 45,000 and got the job. 45,000 people. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. How, how yeah. big is Chicago Fire Department, just out of curiosity? Uh, 4,500 with then 500 medics. Interesting. Yeah. So, so you're standing there. It reminds me, because I did the exact same thing. I, had, I, I went with a person who said, let's go take the fire department test. And I said, for what? You're number one on the police test. And Jerry, you know who you are if you're listening. And uh, I went there. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, everybody else is is all, you know, like primed and ready to go. And uh, you had to run up the ladder and down the ladder and carry the this and hook up the hose. And I, I have no idea how it worked out. No, but it did. Yeah, I thought I was going to get home in my father was going to kill me um almost the same way as that three weeks before that or no about six months before that he was driving home from work down foster avenue and i was out waiting for the foster bus after we played tackle football at my high school and um that was three weeks before i was going to take the physical and he almost broke both my legs for for what reason because uh, i would have hurt myself before I took the physical. <laughs> felt better if he broke my legs rather than me breaking my own. Um, anyhow. So we digress. <laughs> yeah. Why, why, uh, why fire department? Just was, was there somebody you knew? Cause your, your father was a, a police officer, correct? He was, he, he forbid me to take the poli Chicago police exam. And he was the one who encouraged me to take the fire exam. And I'm like, fire exam. I knew nobody that was in the fire service, uh, but it was a good fallback when everybody else didn't want me. Um, but I, ironically enough, the, the best thing that ever happened to me was my, um, uh, what's the word, like infallibility, my, my lack of ability to do anything really good. So <laughs> I don't think infallibility is the right word for that, but that's okay. Yeah, so, something around there. But because I couldn't do well in microeconomics, I got a psychology degree. Because I didn't do well in the police, I did okay on fire, but I didn't do really well. So I ended up getting into uh, behavioral health because I got a psychology degree. So then I, in 86, I started working with kids that uh, had substance use issues. And that was, right, 38 years ago that I started working with adolescents, I always kid around because that was how I learned how to be a parent, but it really taught me how to deal with kids that were troubled and parents that didn't know how to be parents. Were you dealing, uh, working, <clears throat> excuse me, with, with kids um, as part of your degree program or you were, you had a job that that's what you were doing? Yeah, believe it or not, I did graduate, and then I got a job. 
<laughs> no, like I don't, I don't know where the the fire department fell in there. Oh, so yeah, when '86 I got out and I got, uh, well, I got a job uh, real quick doing some business. Didn't like it. Applied to be a counselor. Got that job. Really liked it, but really poor pay. And it took about three years then for me to get called for the Chicago Fire Department gotcha. in '89. And therefore, I started in the behavior health world, substance use world, um, doing counseling. Got it. So, Rob, I don't want to speak for you, but uh, what what is it that you're you're pursuing right now? So, uh, I want to be a counselor uh, for first responders and uh, trauma in general. So in Ohio, you either have to have a master's in social work or a master's in counseling. So I'm almost complete with my master's in social work. I got a semester and a half left, and then um, I can sit for the state test and go from there. Have you had to do clinical hours, or will that be going forward? Oh, no. I've been uh, doing uh, internship. I'm actually doing internship at – well, it's working out to be three places, really. So the first place is a victim's assistance program. And what we provide there is crisis intervention, uh, victim advocacy. Uh, we go to court with people. We help them fill out protection orders. Um, and it, like last week, um, we had a, a suicide that we responded to to provide uh, crisis intervention to family members and, and friends. Um, and then I do some uh, shadowing at a place called the Safety Forces Center, which provides, for the most part, free counseling services to area first responders. Um, and then there's a uh, additional place that uh, I go over, and uh, it's called Greenleaf Family Center. And I, I work with a uh, licensed social worker counselor over there doing, uh, seeing different clients and stuff. Very cool. Yeah. I, I absolutely love it. Um, I, it's, it's funny because the next three days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, are my busiest. So tomorrow my day will start at eight and I won't get home from doing clinicals and supervisions and all that probably until eight o'clock. Yeah. But Come Friday evening, I'm I'm exhausted. Come Saturday evening, I can't wait for Wednesday to get here again because I, I just enjoy it. It's uh it's very fulfilling uh, to to be able to help people like that. I mean, not that we didn't help a lot of people in our our previous careers, but it, this is just a, a different way. Uh, so I enjoy it. No, that's great. Uh, a lot of people have asked me how I've lasted. 38 years in the, so I, I, I was a counselor. I was an EA, internal EAP. Uh, I wouldn't consider myself a, a therapist because I'm not master's level, but I, I'm licensed as a addictions counselor, mm-hmm. a couple of degrees and worked with, yeah, I, I can't tell you how many hours of working clinically with, Master's level, PhD or PsyD level, doctors, psychiatrists. Um, I wasn't great in, in school, uh, mm-hmm. but I've certainly learned a lot over the, the years. And 
Um, again, going back to how I lasted that long, uh, it's little bits at a time, right? How do you get to be 59, which I am now, and still after a 30-year career in the fire service, survive that, right? All of us. Um, mm-hmm. You had a career. Uh, Mike had a career. And how do we how do we get out with all our limbs and our uh, uh, how what's the word um, sanity? Yeah. Well, I don't I, I don't know that I got out with much sanity, but <laughs> it's definitely uh, I had a blessed career as far as I you know I was fortunate I didn't have any injuries, um, and yeah. So Rob, Dan, Rob is also the the fire chief for his fire department. So it's uh, it, it's a, a bit of a uh, a blessing that you got out with unscathed. Yeah, I often talk to people that when I do talk to fire chiefs, I'm like, hey, when do you turn it off? And it's it's like this. It's like, eh? no, we, we don't turn it off. Yeah, it was it was definitely a twenty four seven job. Um, I, I think I think any chief that's a that strives to be a good chief and a chief for the firefighters, it's a twenty four seven job. I mean, it you're constantly trying to figure out uh, ways to help them make make the environment uh, working environment better, safer. And when I became chief, was right when COVID hit, so. Um, uh, it was exponentially more time consuming than, uh, I, I had originally thought enjoyed every minute of it. Um, I miss a large portion of the guys. Actually, I miss a hundred percent of the guys and about one <laughs> or 2% of the job. Yeah. Well, kind of like when you were saying about that, it made me think about my interactions with people over the years. And I, I, I thought very in the very beginning of working with people, I was going to make a difference. And after about a couple of years, I'm like, man, I got so much to learn. And after another two years, I was like, I know nothing about this mental health, behavioral health stuff. And over the years, I learned that really it's the little things in life. It's really that the basic connection. And sometimes mm-hmm. when I walked away where I didn't think I made a difference, somebody would always remind me later, or or after the conversation by just simply saying thanks for chatting and i'm like yeah but i didn't do anything but in all reality you know we did a lot of stuff by um listening validating uh supporting not telling somebody what to do these are things that you know i'm sure we're going to talk about peer support and what it means to be have a brother and sisterhood but even the simple thing of it, I just talked to a woman today who knew my mom. My mom passed away uh, two months ago, and this woman called up and sent her condolences. And I said, well, who do you have? And, I, and 30 years ago, I wouldn't ask that. I'm like, who do you have? And she's like, well, my, my husband died 20 years ago. I live alone, and my kids are an hour and a half away. And my, resp- my response was, hey, if you need something, give me a call. So she calls me today. And says, you know, the other day I was laying on the ground because I fell and I was there for 45 minutes and I couldn't get to the phone. I didn't have the uh, life alert, anything like that. And I said, let me have you talk to my wife. She can help you figure that stuff out. And just mm-hmm. 
the fact that she knew she could call me, I didn't do anything except listen and then pass her off to my wife who pretty much right. did everything else. Those are, those are really big moments in people's lives. Um, so I wouldn't discount those, those, the little, the little touches we've had in the fire service. And to, to your point, uh, I don't miss the circus a little bit. Sometimes I had some crazy runs downtown that, uh, one actually I think about, and I, I'm not a fire. I don't talk about fires. I talk about the crazy incidences. One made world news where we had an elevator rescue at the, in the, <clears throat> the John Hancock, um, but uh, I missed the clowns. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm losing my voice too. So sorry. Yeah. So Mike, why do you want me here? What the hell? Well, I want to hear. We met. When did we meet? Twenty twenty fourteen, I believe it was, and we met at FDIC. Where you stalked me? Uh, where I was, it was stalking you. It was definitely. It was like a. Come on, set the stage. So, I. You know, you know, you notice Robbie's not denying it. <laughs> it's it's one hundred percent truth. I'm trying to. I want to play to the timeline right. We that was the first big room session, right? Uh yes, yeah. So, uh, Rob, have you ever been to FDIC? Yeah. So imagine the big room. Big room holds a lot of people. A lot, a lot of people. <laughs> Quantify, qualify. Right. Yeah. So the, the big room holds a lot of people. That's where they do the keynote speech, which we'll get to at some point. So uh, I show up there because I'm interested in in uh, behavioral health or mental health or or taking care of people. And uh, there was. If you had a guess, Dan, how, how many people were in the big room session the first? Uh, more than one. <laughs> there, was, there were people on the stage. There was a platform, and there had to be maybe 20 people there. It was, it was you know, uh, it was a moment where it was like, you know, like uh, you look back now and, and you probably knew more than one big room. Um, but I was walking the, the floor, the vendor floor after, and I'm like, that's the guy. Because you had also done a, a session on um, stress and cortisol and, and what do they call that? Uh, adrenal fatigue. Yeah. And I'm like, let me go talk to this guy. So I go over and introduce myself. You were with, uh, what was his name? Rich? Father Father Jim. No, you weren't with Father Jim. You were with uh, tall tall guy. Was it Rich? Oh, um, from my job? Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Yeah, it is rich. Short last name. Either way. So I go over and introduce myself. And uh, <clears throat> and I offered to take him to lunch at the uh, the Rams Head Inn or Ram something. Uh, where, 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 are, did you hit your head recently? Yeah, you did. When were you thinking I was going to stop you with this? Vulgarity? Right about, right, well, if you didn't stop me up to that point, then everything I've said up to this point has been true. Right up to the point where I invited you to lunch. Well, I thought you were trying to get a, a hook in my mouth. and you. <clears throat> so anyhow, I'm standing there with my friend Rich, and I see this guy staring at me. And, and I'm like, you know, I was younger, had more hair, maybe a little bit attractive, but he's not looking at me like that. And 
so talking some more and anyhow i look across the the walkway and i'm like hey how you doing so we end up start talking after about 10 minutes i'm hungry he's boring the heck out of me and i'm like hey why don't we go to dinner <laughs> if, if we're going to continue this conversation i need to have a drink while we're doing it <laughs> so anyhow the rest is history so we we got to know each other then and we've been friends ever since yeah and uh so the, the, the first time after the first time was at the symposium, which was the first uh, Rose, Rosecrantz Florian Symposium. Am I saying that right? That was the title? Yep. yep. So what, what had happened there, from my perspective, and Dan will tell us about how that came to pass, um, I had gotten involved with teaching CIT, Crisis Intervention Team Training, which is primarily geared towards law enforcement. It's a 40-hour program. I was in EFO at the time. Rob and I were in the same EFO class. And that's when everything really changed for me. That's where I got involved in the stuff that we're talking about here. And I saw that at the symposium, you were offering mental health first aid. And um, what is her name, the trainer? Sarah, yeah, Sarah Reichwald. Yes. I called and her up. And it's... And just so you know, my brain did start working again. It's Rich Dory was the Dory. guy I was talking to. Yeah. yeah. I said, so. Yeah. Rich Dory. So I called Sara. Actually, I called Dan and said, is okay if I ask uh, Sara if I can train with her? And I called her up, and, and there was not a fire and EMS module at the time. There was just a public safety module. And I said, hey, listen, I'm me, and this is what I'm doing. And would you mind if I can get certified as a trainer? Would you mind if I come out there and help you deliver this program? She's like, hell, if you're going to come out here and you want to you want to help me train, you're more than welcome. And that's how I delivered my first mental first aid class. I did it at uh, at the Rosecrans Florian Symposium in in. Come on. Uh, Let it out. Hang on. It was. It's a flower. Rose, Rosemont, Ro Rosemont. There you go, Ro Rosemont, Illinois. Yes, sir. So, how did you get involved? In, you get hired by the fire department. You're you're doing fire department things, right? How how did this path to to firefighter behavioral health? How do you refer to it? First of all, I, I'm not quite sure it's all that important, but from a a, a trusted professional. What is the vernacular? Do you use behavioral health, mental health? What, what do you use? Uh, it depends on the decade, right? Is that everybody's using behavioral health now because it's a softer thing. But I would, I would say from a holistic standpoint, mental wellness. What does that mean? Are you asking that's, me what No, that's, I'm saying is that I would... I would prefer because usually when you, anybody uses the word mental with any other word, there's a negative stig stigma. Okay. So I would want to change that from a more positive standpoint as mental wellness. I like it. So how did you, I, I know bits and pieces. Yeah. Um, but you are, it's, it's 1989. You get hired. You're doing psychology work. You're doing counseling. When did you get involved in, in firefighter mental wellness? Well, all I'm going to say is that 
<clears throat> like many things in my life that I've already shared with you already, I wish I could say that I'm a um, visionary, but I, I have done some things later in my life that in the beginning I was lucky and I kind of fell into. So get into fire service. I um, ended up talking to a medic about some stuff. And long story short, he tells me that he's with the union's EAP program. Well, since I have a background in psychology and you know, a degree that I did some counseling, we got to talk and he's like, Hey, you should give me a call. So we start talking. I look into it a little bit, find out that our union has an EAP internal EAP or the fire department has a internal EAP and the city has a EAP. You're like, well, why three APs? Well, when you get this big of a city, you kind of need that. And um, the union EAP and the fire department EAP were run by firefighters. So they were really uh, people in their own recovery that have advanced, not advanced degrees, but education as well and are helping our membership. So I call the guy that's in charge and I start asking some questions. And this is going back, right, back in like 1994. And this guy started in the 70s. So you ask anybody that came on in the 60s and 70s a question, like, what do you want? So that's, <laughs> that's kind of how he responded to me. I'm like, this conversation is not going to go well. I'm he familiar. thought I was going to take his job. And I'm like, I just just curious about what this was all about. So long story short, he ends up getting sick, unfortunately. And the guy that I had met at the uh, firehouse, this guy, Kevin Grand, calls me up and says, hey, would you want to do some part-time work? So that's how it began. He called me up and was like, would you want to help us out? So I didn't know his plan was for me to take over in a year because, unfortunately, the guy that I had talked to, Don Manning, who started the program, was the godfather to EAP and kind of peer support in the fire service in, in the country, really. I mean, that, that was the guy who I took the place of. Um, I didn't start it, but a lot of people will call me the old guy, which I am. Uh, but somebody did it before me, before sure. it was sexy. And so this guy, Kevin, in a year got me to become certified as an EAP. And then Kevin one day is like, hey, Dan, I'm retiring and it's all yours. I'm like, what? <laughs> I go, I'm just wanting to help out part time. So that's I fell into that. I ended up becoming uh, a member of the standing committee for the IFF on their labor EAP committee with guys like Frank Lito from New York and Willie Astegai from Boston. And then really using my education and all my contacts that I've had from counseling, I moved our internal union EAP from a kind of singular focus of helping men and women who had problems with drinking to a really a broad brush program. Um, hired three people, got them certified as addictions counselors, got them certified as uh, EAPs. And then in 2008, 9, and 10, we had 11 suicides in two and a half years, right. which kind of broke our backs. That was something that we, we I lived with with my own father, who was suicidal for 30 years and had three very close attempts. But I didn't know that in the fire service it was happening. 
And so I started doing research. I actually looked at 20 years of deaths in the Chicago Fire Department and put out the only study known so far from the fire service collectively and gave the incident rate compared to the general population. And I thought it was a, I, I did presentations about sounding alarms of that, that it's a, uh, well, one, it's tragic, but I thought it was increasing because we had those 11 and two and a half years, but we had over those 20 years, years, five actual years at different, different years, obviously not in succession, where we had no suicides. So it's really hard to look at just a cross section. You got to look at a whole timeline. Anybody right. that looks at statistics. And so over the last 30 years, 20 of which I was, well, 14 of which I was part of the, the coordinator for local two ZAP. Uh, but I looked at 20 years of deaths. We actually had two per year, which is two too many each year. Uh, but the incident rate was about 24 per 100,000, which if you look at back then, the incident rate for the general pop, which is not a good comparison, it was about half that. It was about 12 per 100,000. But what you got to really do is look at the uh, demographics. And the demographics of the fire service is mainly made up of more white males than any other population. Right. And if you look at the general population, it's it's really mixed. So when you compare Caucasian males in the Chicago Fire Department with Caucasian males in the general population, those numbers are pretty close. So I'm not going to get into if we're more apt to die by suicide or not, but that made me say, man, there's a lot more that I don't know about behavioral health, mental wellness, uh, trauma, all the things that we've been talking about, and obviously why Rob is interested in, um, you know, mental wellness, we'll say. And there's a reason they call it practice in medicine, because we still learn. What we knew 30 years ago is not what's in the DSM, not completely all what's right. in the DSM today. And that led me then to start the symposium in 2000 in uh, well, let me back up a second, because in 2014, after those suicides and we continue to have suicides, I knew I was going to move on and do something else. And one of the things I wanted to do was get back into the treatment uh, arena. But when I looked across the country back then, there were only really three programs in the country that focused on first responders. There was the VA and there was a couple out in East that focused on kind of first responders, but there were only three programs out of 2 million active and retired members across the country and look at police departments and dispatchers and EMS and all that. There wasn't a focus on that back then. So I went to several different organizations and asked them, I said, would you start a program? And uh, luckily, Phil Eaton, who is the CEO of Rosecrans, was like, yeah, let's do that. So we started the Florian program back in 2014. And if you fast forward now, there's about 80 programs across the country that 
focus on first responders and more growing, including outpatient programs, which is fantastic. But that's not to say that we're doomed to have mental health problems. I want to flip the script a little bit and say what all of us have do, are doing and kind of what Rob mentioned, and you know this, uh, Mike, is that the best thing that we have in the fire service is us. Sometimes the worst thing that we have is us. Agreed. And I'll say that one of the stats, well, we did stats in Chicago and New York did stats too. And my buddy, Frank Lito, who uh, we, we've taught, we, we've talked, we've taught together, we've instructed, we've done presentations together and we merged our information over our, and he did 20 years or, or a little bit more in the FDNY counseling center. Even though I only did 14 as the coordinator, I've been around it for a long time. When we look at all our data, the number one reason people called us was because of relationships, relationship issues at home. Now, there's always more things that are involved there. But the second most reason that people called us was because of work-related issues. And a lot of that has to do with relationships as well, either not having a good leader or um, not being a yeah, not being a good leader, or not having good leadership or training, or all different types of things. There's not just one focus, one variable. And so, what what I needed to do with besides then um, creating a, a a treatment approach and focus like the Florian program was we needed to get out in front and talk about this from a prevention, right? There's intervention, there's postvention, but what about the prevention? Nobody likes uh, um, being in fire inspection because it, it, it sounds kind of boring. But what, we, what you have to think about is people that are in peer support, those people, we typically talk about the losses that we have, but we don't know how many people we really have probably saved. Correct. How do you, right? how do you, yeah, how do you quantify a life saved unless somebody comes out and tells you? But it's very difficult to, it, it, same thing with fire prevention, very difficult to say how much, how much building loss or fire loss did we mitigate by these activities or things like that. In, innumerable, right? I mean, we have a lot of fire loss, but from fire inspection, how many things, and, and the whole reason uh, that the NFP, NFPA, and, and some people might not see the comparison, but the reason NFPA got started and all the uh, uh, inspections and preventions was because Insurance people got together and said, hey, we're losing way too much money because of fires. So they came up with guidelines to prevent that stuff. And unfortunately for me, again, I, my, I'm very fallible. That's the word that I want to use is that when I think I'm smart, I'm not. It's just because like, you want to talk to me about behavioral health or mental wellness or substance use but I didn't foresee the, the suicides. I didn't know it was an issue until it hit me right in the face. Right. And then I found out it's been going on forever. I just, we, all of us probably didn't have our collective heads about us. 
and I'm not trying to be mean to anybody, but all the drills that we create in the fire service usually is because something bad happened. Somebody got hurt or killed. You know, I, I think you said a lot there. And the, the one th- I want to ask you a question about the report you talked about, but I don't want to lose my train of thought. I, I think it's, in my opinion, let's start with that. It's the easiest way and the safest way to do that. In my opinion, it's easier for us to talk about suicide and substance use and relationship issues at home and divorce and, and all the, the things that come along with that than it is to talk about toxic work environments or uh, organizational betrayal or things like that. Uh, I'm not a clinician. Uh, don't have a clinical background. Really don't, at this point in my life, don't necessarily want one. But I know enough to know that if you are, uh, if you're putting your foot on somebody's neck after a while, it, it's going to, it's going to have an adverse effect and it's going to come out in other places. And I think the fire service needs to do more in that area because in my opinion, it's, it's the, it's the biggest factor. I mean, I know it, as I said before on this, on this podcast, it's the reason I'm retired. I didn't retire because I didn't like the fire service. I retired because it was untenable. Uh, and and to whatever level I contributed to that, I mean I'm 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 fallible the same way that you are, um, but you know continue to hear s- stories of um, of situations where you're creating conditions for for people that are not conducive to to wellness, and I, I'm gonna I like the the word. And the way it 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 fits and describes what we're trying to do, um, how do we do that? I, I don't know. Uh, one of the things that Rob and and Michael and myself in starting this podcast in early before we started, and Rob will uh, back me up on this. We talked about leadership as a as a a main focus, and we said, you know, there's so many people talking about leadership. Um, are we infinitely infinitely more qualified than other people to talk about that. We, you know, we're not necessarily infinitely more qualified to talk about mentorship, but there wasn't a lot of people talking about it either. So I want you to keep your thought, but what, and I, you know, got Bobby Halton, rest his soul. He always told me, and, and I'm not a great writer. I wrote, written a couple of things for him, but he goes, you know how many people write about leadership, but with that leadership too, Anybody can quote anybody out there that has written a book, been in a magazine, had his own, had their own quote. That's super. But have you built it yourself? Right. Have you truly been a mentor? And I can't say I have. That's that's why I actually wanted to be on this. When I come on these types of podcasts, it's not to be like, hey, I did everything right. I, I've probably done more wrong than I've done right. And one of the things that I really didn't do until probably the later part of my life so far is understand the impact that I have on somebody else. Right. 
Well, that you know that that's what mentorship is, as far as we're concerned. Uh, you know, when in in episode one of the first ones, you know, uh, I don't have it written in front of me, but mentorship is a gift from the mentor to the mentee. Where what what we're doing here is what Rob and I are doing tonight is having you on Dan as a guest to say we know you've done some stuff. Share that with people. Not talk about tactics there's plenty of other people talk about tactics not to talk about leadership and this is what you should do but people and and i know that you know this i know that you do people look at dan de grace circa january 30th 2023 or 24 uh, my my apologies and think that you you started here you know there was a there was a beginning. There was there was a thousand errors and lessons learned, and didn't see that coming. And 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 let's uh, not get crazy about a thousand. I mean, like maybe five hundred or something like that. Give the over under. <laughs> I mean, really. I was try. I was going for effect. <laughs> um, the there's not enough time in a in a. A, a consumable podcast to talk about everything but but what we find and specifically me the thing that i love most about doing this is that at some point a guest will remember something that they haven't thought of in a while just because we're taking them down that path and and then to hear people tell that story it gives people hope that wherever they are right now there's there's still more to come. You know, when you, you told me the story, um, when you started the symposium that, you know, it was one of the, you wanted to do it, but it, you would have done it differently and did do it differently. The second year, the mistakes that you made, uh, the, the, you know, again, not the, not to focus on the mistakes, but the lessons that you learned from that. There's plenty of people that make mistakes but don't learn the lesson. Uh, you know, it, it's easy to look right now at the, what did you say, there's 80 programs? Yeah, 80 or more. Right. How, how many, if you had to guess, how many conferences, symposiums, uh, whatever, how many of those annually? A lot. Well, well, yeah. Well, back when I started the symposium in fifteen or sixteen, I think it was, I think it was fifteen. There were none be because I researched. I researched them because I wanted to go, and I, I researched firefighter behavior health conference symposium summit, and I couldn't find any. And that I we did it for four years, and now I would say. I would say at minimum a half a dozen if and I haven't looked all through the the country, but there's probably regionally I would guess ten to twenty now right that like we were talking about before the big room stuff so give you know give yourself a little credit um, not that that you're not, but the there was a a, a shift a cultural shift in the fire service. Uh, and and perspective is is the best lens, right? Being able to look backwards. 
because you know you didn't know at that at that particular time the impact that you were going to have. What what I want to know, I know how I got there. I got there because I I stalked you on the floor at FDIC. But th- you know, there are people that I still talk to today. Paul Sumner, a good friend of mine, lives around the corner. I met there. How, well, how did Paul find out about that? You know, I met all the Rhode Island boys, uh, Joey and Anthony and and uh, all the guys that are out there. How how did you how did you put that together? What what how how heavy of a lift was that? Uh, it, it was I, if I knew all the steps I had to do then, as I do now, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I was again, probably too ignorant to know how many obstacles I was going to run into <laughs> from, no, seriously, that uh, I was like, I just knew it had to be done. And I was not going to take no for an answer. So I just kept on putting one foot in front of another and, and, and trying to make it happen. And, and I was, I'm so exciting, right? He, Rob, he, he's like, I'm done. <laughs> I think he might have logged himself off. Yeah, but, I don't know uh, how he does that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But what I'll say about it, Rob, is that I, I, I think I gave, gave, and I appreciate what Mike is saying in a sense of maybe launching that. I remember having talks with, you know, Bobby Halton back in 2014 and 15 and asking if he did any mental health, mental wellness, behavioral health in at FDIC. And he, you know, kind of looked at me, he's like, what are you talking about? This is a fire. And not to talk bad about him, but again, it, it wasn't the conversation. And that's only 10 years ago. Right. But when I was talking about suicide back then, I really didn't know the favorable parts that, the fire service, the strength-based parts that the fire service offers our membership. And then from a leadership standpoint, like when I was talking about the coworkers, we're our best friends and our worst enemies, is that if I can ask all of us to just go into work and do one nice thing, not to do, not, not, you know, something, not to be nice all friggin' day, because I can't do that either. It's just not in our blood, right? We got to pick on somebody. We got to say something, but not like what Mike said, not to have your have your foot on somebody's throat is I, I had an incident where I was, I, I, I got in early. The guy that was on watch the night before, it was like five o'clock in the morning. He was making coffee. He was walking around the, the kitchen. And I, and I said this at, at FDIC in, in the, keynote that Bobby had me do and I just had a like a minute and a half two minute interaction with the guy but I had I had a couple of words favorable with him and I went to walk out with my coffee and he and he said to me he goes he used my rank right he goes hey chief and I'm like yeah what and I was kind of like frustrated that he was wanting to talk more because I had to go and or I wanted to go and and he said thanks and I said thanks for what and he said thanks for talking and uh, to this day i mean this is decade a decade after that happened Mm. and i felt like that big i'm like what an asshole i am sorry that i don't 
take every conversation and make it as important as it's supposed to be. And I've learned again, how fallible I am. So I, I continue to be shown and taught and told <laughs> what, a, what a numbskull I am sometimes. Well, I think, I think it is difficult. Um, and you know, I, I know for me, it, I don't know if it's coming with age or, or what, but I'm appreciating those minutes more and more in my life. You know, that just that two minute conversation that you have with somebody, um, and being present for it, um, that, you know, back when I was working and I'm sure you could relate, especially as a battalion chief, you know, your mind's going a million miles a minute trying to figure out what you're doing that day. And, you know, the, the thought of sitting and, and talking with somebody, it's not that we necessarily didn't want to do it. We just didn't think to do it. It, it, it just wasn't there. But I, I've had similar instances um, with people. And, and, you know, I'll go back to what we were talking about earlier. One of the things that I love most about being a fire chief or, or a shift commander or something was being able to have a positive impact on on the firefighters, you know, and it, by having a positive impact, sometimes it was directing them towards some training or some professional development. But more times than not, it was just giving them five minutes of your time to say, how are you doing? And, and, and actually listening. Um, you know, I've been out almost two years and, and it's kind of bittersweet, but I still get phone calls from the guys who are struggling with, with, with different things. Uh, you know, um, it, it's, I think you said it earlier, don't ever underestimate the impact that, that a minute you can make in someone's life. So. Yeah, well, I look at uh, Mike, who's just struggling with the the uh, audio visual, but I, I'm I'm richer because of the conversations I've had with him, and I could have easily ignored that, but uh, I'm better for it. And yeah. when I engage, I'm usually better. When I disengage, I'm I'm, I'm not good. And I have to remember that with people, not that I have to force people to have a conversation, but I know that for me, if anybody's out there in the fire service, right, the best thing we could do at the kitchen table, but sometimes the worst thing we could do at the kitchen table, because we could ostracize people. And it's important that while we like to put fish hooks in people's mouths and we like to uh, throw stones at people, make sure that you leave friends and that that connection because when i think about the the 30 members who died by suicide in our and in, in the chicago fire department in the 30 years that i was associated with it is that the the number one thing was the lack of connection with something or someone or others because you've isolated with them the best thing and most productive thing we have in the fire service is that kitchen table, the brother and sisterhood, and that camaraderie. Don't right. lose that. You know, one of the things that we were talking about is the, the impact 
people, I didn't realize the impact that you could have on somebody. Not that I wanted to be honestly a leader to anybody because I, man, there's people way better at leadership than me. Not, not just in my department, but all across the country. And what I have to do is listen and learn. I agree with that. The, the point, I, I remember the call that changed my career. And it wasn't, it, was, it had nothing to do with the call. It was, it was, in other words, it was a carbon monoxide call. It was nothing. But it was that I realized on that call that I needed to think differently and and, and thinking differently caused me to act differently. And and that was the big change for me. And when it comes to to, you know, we've all been in positions of leadership, positions of leadership, meaning the opportunity to exercise leadership and have an impact on people and, and things like that. But you don't need to be in a position of leadership to be able to do that either. Um, so you have the responsibility to do that. That comes with the position. And um, one of the things that I, I recall, I had a conversation with, with a, a, a guy, and it was towards the very end for me as I was getting ready to leave. And uh, he said to me, Chief, you you can't leave. And I said, do you like being supported? And he said, 100%. I said, so do I, and I don't have that. Uh, So sometimes it doesn't take anything more than just supporting people. And and, um, one of the things I added to a a presentation that I used to give was, because I had heard it and it made a lot of sense to me. Um, you can't grow a tomato. You can only create the conditions for the tomato for the tomato to grow. So, you know, it's a, it's about fostering that that environment for for things to flourish. And uh, I there are days, there are many days where I feel infinitely unqualified to to talk about mental health stuff because I don't have a clinical background. And then I'm reminded that by, by people around me that it doesn't take a clinical background to make a difference in, in the, the mental health and wellness of, of people. Uh, and, you know, that kind of brings us full circle back to that, that conversation. Um, you know, you, you're in the, you're in the, um, You're in the business of of treating firefighters at, at this point, at this stage of your life. Um, but there are things that we can do. There's so much that we can do as a as a profession to pr- prevent that and actually um, create conditions for wellness that that have zero impact on service delivery. If if nothing else, they would improve it. But it would re- require people to think differently and then act differently. And I'm hopeful, um, I'm just not convinced that it's going to happen uh, wholesale anytime soon. It's it's a yeah, it's a, but I think that there's been a discussion a lot more. I mean, look at your guys' podcast mentorship. You're talking about everything, and and not from a 
title standpoint, but really from a leadership le leading thoughts and ideas. And when I look at the people that I, when I came on the job, those, those people were men amongst boys. I mean, right. I, I mean, I wasn't a small guy. I was six one, two twenty, coming out of college, playing uh, ball. I, I wasn't a, the toughest guy. I wasn't the strongest guy. But man, you looked at these people, and I'm like, holy crap! These are these are men, <laughs> and th they don't wear masks. They put out fire. They climb ladders, roofs, lead out, and there's not a complaint at all. Unfortunately, the average life expectancy of the Chicago Fire Department back in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s was four to seven years. After we retired? Yeah. And I, and I got the stats. I looked at, I looked at 20 years of, of statistics, and they typically retired at 60, 63. They lasted to 67, maybe 71. That's the average. I don't know what it is now because I really haven't looked at it. Uh, I don't have the numbers. But I, I realized, even though that I didn't, I, I followed them and I didn't wear my mask all the time. And I think we all did that, too, because, you know, leather lungs and all that. That, that was fuck, that was so stupid. But that was that was the society back then. You could not go in with your mask. But that's going to take dollars and time away from my family. Anybody that's listening now that's a young person, protect yourself. Number one. We're getting into, you know, the, the gear and the PFAS and all that. I won't get into it, but protect yourself, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally. And back then, they didn't talk about that. That was their lifestyle. There was no way to talk about that. And I'm not saying that we're weak at all, or we're, but there, there wasn't a venue for it. You couldn't even talk. Well, I tell people you couldn't get drinking out of the firehouse. You couldn't get smoking out of the firehouse. How are you going to talk about mental health? Um, things do change. And currently, for any one of us to get on this podcast to talk about anything but our positivity, that wouldn't have flown 10 years ago. You don't get a promotion when you lead with vulnerability. Correct. Um, but that's a quality, I think, when we're talking about leadership. Can somebody stand up there and say, you know what, uh, and talk from that aspect? I'm not saying I'm right. I've just learned that you're, you asked me about behavioral health, and I wondered why I got into it. It wasn't because I thought about it, like I want to become a counselor or a therapist or an addictions counselor. <laughs> I couldn't do microeconomics. And... Um, a couple of other things. I didn't get some other jobs. I don't know where I would be, but thank goodness. And I'm not overly religious, but thank goodness somebody up there is looking out for me. And I've kind of moved in a direction that wasn't sexy 30 years ago, wasn't sexy 20 years ago. And yeah, I've, I've, I've learned a fair share about people and, and, and what matters and from a clinical standpoint, practiced that for 38 years. So I'd like to think I'm okay with that. I'm not going to say I'm really good. Uh, I don't know all the therapies out there, but I have a general idea. But nowadays, 
people can be therapists like Rob during or after a career where before, uh, believe it or not, when they found, when guys found out in Chicago that I went to college and I got a psychology degree, it it, it wasn't favorable. (laughs) That's all I'll say. (laughs) It was not favorable for me for, for many years. So I'm I'm looking at some of the things I got written down here that I want to definitely want to get to. Um, What, what did it take to start the Florian program? What would what, what did that look like? Well, it started with an idea. It started with a, a partner, somebody in uh, of importance and persuasion, and that was the CEO. And then, really, the idea was when I talked to Joe Casolino and Anthony Lancelotti and a few other people that I knew, and I said, I know that the mental health and I'm not going to paint a pant picture. Yeah. There were 60 members during my career that died by suicide, but there are a lot of great people in the Chicago fire department and a lot of them that didn't have outlets. And you, again, I, I do not want to paint a paint a bad picture. We just, we, because we have, 8,000 active and retired members. We have a lot of people. The average fire department is about 150 to 250 people. They have the same issues as we do, but just that not aggregately right. the same number. But percentage, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But we won't, We probably won't know for another thousand years because nobody keeps that data. Nobody's thought about keeping that data. I, I, I looked that data up and I had all those numbers. Um, We should be so, we we have so many skilled individuals in our line of work. We should be so far ahead, but we have a tendency to live up to that old adage, 150 years of tradition unimpeded by progress. Right. You need, need people to stand out and say, listen, no, we need writ companies out in front. We need different channels. Um, We need to follow the NIOSH five. We need to drill every single day instead of laying on the frigging couch. People do die in this. We need to wear our masks. We need to change. I could go on, right? It's not just behavioral health. Sometimes we think we're smarter than God himself, and we need to better ourselves, and, and, and people need to say, no, that's not the right way. But, like the worst thing you can say to somebody, even though I've said it in the past, that's the way we've always done it. No, tell me the reason why we do this and how we got to this point. And should this be the current way that we do it? Just like therapies and a DSM, there's a reason that we're in our our DSM-5 and it's been revised again. Because the first one, we don't look at anymore. And things have changed. True. So our thinking has to change too. And... When you're talking about building something, again, I go back to talking about Joe and Anthony. I said, what do you think? And they're like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Well, what do you think we should do? I'm not sure. So I did that for like three years. And I'm like, I got to get somebody of some persuasion to buy into this. Phil Eaton did that. And nine and a half years later, while I left, um, the, what, what bogged me down there, even though it was successful and a lot of people uh, – use the same model in different organizations. 
they wouldn't focus on primary mental health. And so for the last four years, I struggled there. And so I think I shared with you, now I'm with an organization called Recovery Ways that I didn't have to bring that to their table. They, they have it there. And now I get to tell people like you, not that you have to go there, but if you have somebody that's struggling with depression, anxiety, panic disorders, bipolar, PTSD, we have a place. And it, it, whether you're union or non-union or a police officer or a dispatcher or a nurse, you can go there and get treatment for that primary mental health condition in an unlocked facility. That's progress. The great thing, I didn't, I didn't create that. And Jamie Vink, the CEO, saw that, made that vision, and now I became a part of that. So what's cool now is I can kind of tag along and support and promote that because the greatest need I've seen in society, along with the fire service, is underlying depression, anxiety. I'm not even going to see, say PTSD, like the, like the diagnosis. We all have symptomology. We don't all meet the criteria for PTSD. And then there's a lot of underlying exposure and trauma that we've all had through our life that needs to be processed. Yeah, there's there's definitely, and, and I want this to, to come out right so it's not received wrong. There's a lot of talk about PTSD from, legislate, from a legislative uh, perspective or clinical perspective. Um, I don't know half of what you forgot about PTSD, but I do know that there is a lot that goes into receiving an actual clinical diagnosis of, but that doesn't mean that you can't have symptomology um, that, that can be just as, uh, have just as much of a detrimental effect on your life left, left untreated. Um, the, just for the people that are listening, when you say primary mental health, tell us what you mean by that. Why is that? Why is that important? I guess it's a better way of asking that. Why is that so important? Well, because there, there are sixteen thousand treatment centers that you can go to, but you have to have a primary substance use disorder. I don't know how many organizations have a treatment mo uh, program that focus on focuses on somebody that has a primary mental health condition. And if you look at the DSM, there's 350 of them in there. I'm just guessing there's some around there. Right. Um, and from an unlocked facility where you are not just managed by medication and have to sit there and keep your hands to yourself, but really immer immerse yourself into modalities like, um, trauma-informed type therapies and trauma therapies and sensory therapies to better understand your mental wellness, your uh, physical and emotional and, and, and mental consistency and health. Uh, P 
people will, many of the programs out there from an SUD standpoint, focus on the 12 steps and working the 12 steps and having talk therapy. That's great. Um, but for the last five years, when I have had strong conversations and in-depth conversations with military personnel, veterans, and other first responders, there's usually a underlying anxiety and depression, more anxiety than depression. And many people that are hypervigilant that don't have PTSD, but are hypervigilant from a, I mean, our body takes in information eight different ways. I, I, I understand the sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, but there's other there's three other ways, which I can't, I'm not smart enough again to explain. Right. But I, but you're always taking in information. And just because you get tachycardia doesn't mean that you have PTSD. It could mean that you are hypersensitive and have a level of anxiety that's going on. Do you have a, a, an opinion, a thought, uh, maybe a, there's an actual clinical reason for this, why anxiety is more prevalent than the depression. I mean, I'll tell you the truth. For myself, anxiety is something that I, I deal with day to day, uh, which is primarily driven by stress, um, fear, worry, things like that. Uh, is, is there a reason for that that you can speak to? Yeah, but not. I mean, it would take a, a minute to try to explain that. What I can say is from a sharing about myself is that I developed an anxiety disorder called OCD in childhood because I grew up in an alcoholic family where every minute and every day was un, uh, undetermined. And we didn't know what was going to happen. So that created unrest. Uh, insecurity, fear, um, frustration, and all different types of emotions that laid unmanaged through most of my childhood. And therefore, I had racing thoughts, and nothing was good enough. And that that went and built over time as I hit it and uh, didn't get treatment for it. So I managed that myself, like many of us did in our own childhoods, whether it be bullying at school, at work. Um, I mean, you could get into, that's why they do biopsychosocials, right? To find out what the biology of you are, what the physiology of you, of you are, and what the mental health aspect is. Some of us are have different neurotransmitters and different levels of that. That's why we should go to the doctor to see if we need supplements, just like vitamins. And there's some of us just, just think differently. And uh, the sound of rain might be calming to somebody else, but I'll give you an example. A sound of rain to me reminds me of the two times I almost drowned. And the one time my house almost um, was, was uh, ruined because we were under we were under construction and there was a torrential rainpour and I thought I was gonna lose my house and my family. And 
you're like, oh, come on, you're a fireman, you know, a firefighter you, and all the things I've done. Yeah. Well, tell that to my body when it starts raining. <laughs> yeah. My brain knows I'm safe, but my body remembers that uncomfortability for, for not minutes, not hours, but like a half a night of fear. And some people live with that. Yeah. Many years, both. And again, going back to the reason people called us relationships at home, whether it be your, your, your siblings, your parents or your spouse, and then work related issues because of bullying or lack of supervision or lack of direction. All those things affect how we feel. Did you ever experience or witness anything that rose to the level of bullying? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not going to get into particulars, but um, in... What I can say is that there were a couple of times that I was probably unfair or mean to somebody. I don't think I bullied anybody. But what I try to tell people is regardless of age and, and, and gender, everybody, I was, I could say I was bullied. Right. Uh, I think most of us were bullied and even bullies are bullied in school, at work. And it's, it's the king of the mountain, right? Um, th there was many days that I, I know that I went home wondering if I was going to hack it with yeah. certain people, uh, well, even when I was a battalion chief. Well, the old saying hurt people, hurt people comes to mind. Uh, not that yeah, and there's a different, and there's a difference too. There's sometimes where you're scared and there's sometimes where you want to rip the guy's throat out. Right. Right. There's, and at the end of my career, I wanted to rip a couple of throats out, but I'm like, don't, don't do that. Yeah. You shouldn't do that. Yeah. Probably not recommended. <laughs> um, the, <clears throat> excuse me. Before you go on, I just want to say when you mentioned about anxiety, something I learned again, I'm 59. I've taken a lot of classes. I've, I've taught stuff on suicide. I'm not the brightest person in the world, but I have learned quite a bit. I, I more recently learned that more people that die by suicide have anxiety disorders than depression. And that threw me for a little bit of loop. And I had to reread because I don't read really well, honestly. And again, so I have to read things slowly. I got to read things again. And I'm like, did I just read that correctly? I'm like, gosh, darn. So that was, you know, last year when I was 58. And I'm like, man, I got a lot to learn still. Yeah. You mentioned before a while back about the suicide report that you did, that you published. Where, 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 where did you publish that? Yeah, I wish it was in um, Fire Engineering. I wish I knew Bobby back then. But it was in Fire Chief Magazine. And Fire Chief... <clears throat> It's no longer. Can you still get it? Can you still get a copy of it? You might be able to. I have a copy. If anybody wanted to get it from me, I certainly could send it to them. And if not, you could try Googling 
my name and 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 there there should be some excerpts out there if you if you put in my name with suicide in chicago uh, what what year roughly that that was it was published in 2010 okay but if if any you know my name is up there dan degrace if you put dan uh, yeah dan degrace at gmail.com uh, i'll send it to you perfect when i first saw you speak you were speaking about adrenal fatigue and i had a hey, person michael uh, i'm sorry i don't mean to interrupt but uh actually it's on rose Krantz's Hmm. Website looks like Ch uh, Chicago Fire Department suicide study. Okay, there we go. Thanks, uh, Rob. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I wanted to catch her before we got too far, but go ahead. No so adrenal fatigue is, is something that uh, I know uh, a couple people uh, personally, other than yourself, um, that have. Experienced this, so I guess is the best way of saying it. Uh, I've heard people say it's not a thing. Um, what are your thoughts? If you would, if I didn't have it, I would have said the second thing. It's not a thing. I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Again, we what we don't know, we kind of shun or we fear. And so I was experiencing low energy. I was waking up. Regardless of when I woke up, I never felt rested. I kind of had a little bit of haze and blurry vision. Um, again, didn't have a lot of uh, get up and go and want to do things. And I really thought, like some people say, oh, you're depressed. I thought I had dysthymia. So when we talk about PTSD, there's levels to degree. And complex PTSD with depression, there can be Depression, major depression, or also could be dysthymia, which is a low level of depression. And I always ask people, what are those symptoms? And it kind of, I just described to you. So again, luckily to have a lovely wife that's way smarter than me, she did some research and she's like, you might have adrenal fatigue. I'm like, well, what is that? And it really was the symptoms that I had. And I, well, how do I find out that I have that? Well, she found out you go get your cortisol level tested right what the hell is cortisol and why don't we test for it right people test for testosterone and um you know different blood tests and different levels your triglycerides and your cholesterol but not cortisol well if we're in a field right that let's just say number one i have ocd so i i'm hypersensitive not hyperactive but hypersensitive Right. I'm always looking around, being aware, thinking, recurrent thoughts. And then you get into a field where you have to be hyper aware. When do you ever shut it down? Well, in order to be hyper aware and all that, you have to use energy. And where does the energy come from? Your body. When your cells produce or let off that sugar and adrenaline, and your your the bells and the tones go off five, 10, 15, 20, 25 times a day, and you're a chief and you got two phones or a pager, and then you have all the sirens around you. Well, 
how active is your system and how many times is adrenaline being kicked out through your HPA axis and then how many times cortisol is being kicked out? Well, if you have too much of something, your body's then going to try to find a balance. And therefore, what you find out is they call it adrenal fatigue. Your adrenal glands get tired and then for survival, they produce less. And by producing less, you have a uh, adverse or different reaction. Instead of being hyper-aroused, you become sluggish, slow, because you don't have your body's not producing that adrenaline and cortisol because we know that too much of that can cause uh, heart disease, can cause uh, immune uh, issues, uh, extra weight, all different types of things that are bad for you. So it produces less. And then you have the other effect again, right? That you feel sluggish. It's hard for you to wake up. Six pot, six cups of coffee aren't enough. You got to have four pots to try to raise your energy level. Maybe your libido's low, and you're like, well, "Let me go get my testosterone. My testosterone's fine." It's really the fact that my adrenal glands aren't producing as they should. And that's when I learned about adrenal fatigue. And some people, like you said, don't believe in that. Well, then you say it's, you know, an HPA or hypothalamus pituitary and adrenal gland dysregulation. It's not regulating the way it's supposed to. Were you able to find a practitioner to treat you for this? Did you self, I don't want to say self-medicate, but did you, did you, you know, treat yourself? How did, how did you reverse this uh, situation? So most, most Western medicine doesn't believe in it. They just say, assume you have it and treat yourself. So we did research online. We tested ourselves from a lab test. My adrenals were pushing out uh, uh, my my levels were five in the morning, which is low, yeah. and five in the evening, which is low, uh, which was allowed me to get to sleep, but they stayed the same throughout the day. So that was bad and worse. Really, it should be higher in the morning to wake you up and lower in the evening so you go to bed. What I found right. out when I started testing people is people with insomnia actually had them inverted. You had a higher cortisol level in the evening than you did in the morning <clears throat> so but some people will say just assume that change your eating habits change your sleeping habits use um supplements like vitamin c vitamin b leafy greens meditation low level exercise not high level because as you go to the high level right it excite your body, just do the low levels and then try to sleep better. What did try you do? do that. Try to do all of that. <laughs> I, I try to do all of that uh, as best as I could over a six month period. And I changed my levels from five and five to 16 and nine. Fantastic. Yeah. Lucky. Did, lucky. Did you, so Dan, when you say you uh, tested people or you tested yourself, is this a home test that you can get, or did you have to go through a physician and send it off to a lab? You could do both. You can uh, ask your physician to do it. Sometimes th your physician will put it in and get it covered by insurance. Mine didn't, so I had to go to a lab and pay $50 for the blood draw. Okay. But you could also get a saliva test online 
I don't know, I've never done it, but that will test your saliva five times throughout the day. So you get a, you get more tests throughout the day. With the blood okay. test, you just do it in the morning and the evening. So you know your morning and evening levels. So there's a way to test, to, there's a way to test for it. Um, I haven't tested myself in, in probably the better part of the seven years because I've been what I've been trying to do is just do the right thing. Um, but we we get physicals and we get our cholesterol tested because it leads high cholesterol leads to arteriosclerosis. In the fire service, in my opinion, we should test people's cortisol. What was the what was the biggest um sign or symptom that you that you dealt dealt with um was it a sleep thing for you was it what was the no no low energy and um not being able to have clear thoughts i feel like that right now <laughs> yeah no i mean and again if you look at a lot of the and we'll, we'll I'll shift a little bit, but if you look at the, and Rob knows this, if you read the DSM, uh, you'll probably go, well, I got that. I got that. I got right. that. If you go through all 350 diagnoses, you'll be like, man, I fit all of them, but you really don't. And, yeah. and a lot of those symptoms are in different diagnoses, but the only way to really find out is to get your cortisol level tested and it, and it's worth its weight in gold. Because at one point, I knew nothing about it. And again, that was another thing that I knew nothing about. Because I didn't ever look at it, never talked to anybody about it. I experienced it. My wife was smart enough to figure it out. And then I'm still here because of it. Are you familiar with uh, genetic testing? Uh, have yeah. you ever had that done? No. Yeah, it's something that I'm, I'm looking into doing. I heard a, a podcast by a guy named Gary Brecca, and he talked about it. And uh, apparently, the way that the the interesting part about what he said is is supplementation because you that's what made me think of it. You mentioned supplements. Supplements have to be in the right form in order for your body to absorb it. And if you are lacking in certain things in your body your body won't be able to absorb it. And the only way you'll be able to know this is through genetic testing. So that was interesting to me, number one, based upon some of the things that I'm dealing with. Um, but the second thing that he said, which really mattered to me at 53, is uh, people, he said that people that go through his genetic testing protocol and then get proper supplementation based upon the deficiencies that they have, say that they feel fantastic but the way he describes it is what they're actually feeling is normal they just haven't felt normal in so long that they don't know what normal feels like yeah not to get off a topic and i don't know how much longer you have there's been a lot of discussion about sleep right and none of us knew anything about sleep because we didn't get any we just knew what it felt like to not get a lot of sleep and we're like, well, we'll get it when we're dead and all that other yeah. BS. I've been retired four years. It took me two and a half years after retirement. Again, everybody has different physiology, different 
makeups to a degree and different experiences in their own careers. I was in a battalion that was, and again, not fire stories, but alarms that I would be up six times a night. So you're only getting half hour, 45 minutes. And so when I retired, it took me two and a half years to sleep through the night. I was a little bit frustrated, but I talked to somebody else, uh, Rich Dory. Yeah. And he said that it took him two and a half years. And I'm like, ah, it won't take me that long. Well, it did. And even after two and a half years, I still didn't consistently stay asleep. Now I'm four years. And in the last six months, I have been able, or before I used to only sleep four or five hours a night. Now I'm actually going to bed at nine and waking up at seven. That's, that's like, to me, unbelievable, like 10 hours, not completely because my wife uh, moves around a lot and we have a cat that I'm allergic to. So that throws it off a little bit. Um, but I'm not allowed to talk negatively about the cat, so I'm going to talk. No, we'll we'll edit that out. Don't worry about it. Um, but between its meow and the fact that I get hives and itch and can't <laughs> breathe, but the fact that I can actually sleep more than six, seven, and eight hours is ridiculous. But it that's took, a lot of sleep. It took three and a half years for me to relearn. Or unlearn the bad stuff and relearn and rewire. So all I'm going to say, from a behavioral health, health and 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 a, we we are our brains are incredible organs. When we talk about rethinking and training our brain, whether it be sleep, speech, attitude, behavior, whatever, it can happen. If you allow it to happen, the same thing with my adrenal glands, uh, the fact that I try not to swear as much, the fact that I take a breath before I get aggravated or mad, and the fact that I'm able to sleep, it's really actually pretty cool. Um, But we have to allow time. Most of us go like... Again, no fire stories, but we had a train incident, which we have often in a subway in Chicago where people end their time on earth with the trains. And I remember talking to the conductor and I said, how are you doing? And she's like, I'm doing fine. What is the, what does your organization do for you? She's like, oh, they'll give us three months off. I go, three months off? Yeah. As much time as we need up to three months. So I look at my buddy, Jimmy Pearl, who was the special ops chief. He was standing there. I go, Hey chief, how much time do we get off? He goes, get that, get those blanks on the rig and get to your next run. (laughs) (laughs) That's how much time we get to process stuff. I mean, it's just our, our brain, right? My, my part of my bald head, you can't, expect the average human being to process all the stuff that we experience and not be affected by it. It's definitely an issue. There's no doubt about it. I know uh, around here, 
I was happy to see the change that uh, some of the bigger departments, you know, the smaller departments, obviously were not staffed to allow it, but uh, the bigger department, I, I believe the city of Akron will actually take a unit out of service to let the guys kind of rehab after a, a particularly bad call. Um, that seems to be catching on more and more uh, because you, you raise a great point, right? Suck it up and get back on the truck. The, the next run's coming in. And um, that's one way that uh, they're, they're addressing it. So I'm, I'm excited to hear how well that works for them. Yeah, no, that's cool. Cause I just did a class with the IFF uh, out in Indiana with Mattiskia. I think he's with Akron. Oh yeah. I don't know. Mattiskia. Okay. Uh, he didn't mention that, but no, that's very forward thinking yeah. and not to, not to lose track here, but so using a word forward, if you ever talk to Frank Lito and he's somebody you might want to have on this because he'll tell you he's deputy director of the FDNY Counseling Center, right? People from all over the country, uh, little, not just the country, but the world come to talk to him in regards to what they've done post 9-11. Right. Right. And, and he's made he's made a couple of mistakes more on the golf course than probably in, in otherwise. But that's another issue. Um, now I start to digress and lose my train of thought. Yeah, uh, keep, keep you on track. Right. Yeah. Um, but what they did after 9-11 was somebody came up with the idea and it wasn't him. Let's put therapists in every firehouse. No. Right. So I don't know who thought of that, but they did that. And some of the therapists came running and screaming out of there going, no, no. <laughs> right. Anyhow, whoever thought of that didn't. They didn't come up with that because in World War Two. Somebody came up with the idea of using forward therapy. With the men and women that were struggling with. Whatever they were, you know, with war. And so they came up with forward therapy. Same thing happened to them as it did happen in 9-11 and vice versa, is that with those therapists, because they were exposed to so much, they weren't equipped to manage it and didn't have anybody to process it with. Right. They came out probably worse than a lot of the uh, soldiers because the soldiers at least had themselves to buddy up with. So being always do, you know, doing therapy or using uh, psychology has been shown not necessarily to it doesn't work as good as the brother and sisterhood of peer support so you bring up peer support it's one of the two topics I definitely want to discuss with you before we wrap up uh, talk to us about the IAF of peer support a program. I know, I think you were a, a part of the uh, curriculum development team for that. I know you do a lot of that work. Talk to us about your involvement with uh, peer support. Yeah, well, it really was born out of 9-11 and the fact that everybody was CISM trained and God love Jeff Mitchell who created that, but we couldn't do diffusings in the briefings or wouldn't do diffusions in the briefings and at ground zero and 16 acres of a uh, of a morgue, unfortunately. So after that, and God loves the IFF and 
guys like Pat Morrison, Willie Astegai, Jim Brinkley, and having many discussions about what we need to think about and do differently so that we can support the men and women in the, in the fire service in critical events. And that's where the discussion of peer support model came up. But let's be clear is we didn't create that. Peer support was born out of Europe way back in the uh, late 1800s by a, uh, a, a doctor in an asylum who saw the benefits of using men and women who graduated from his program and brought them in to talk with those individuals that were there at the asylum at the, at, at the time during treatment. Interesting. So when I started the Florian program, well, going back to the IFF, over many years, we discussed this and not to throw CISM out, but really rebirth peer support that is already embedded into the fire service, but build it out into a proactive model and not just reactive after potentially traumatic events, but to build it into a more proactive approach where people at roll call or wherever could say, yeah, I'm a peer supporter. What does that mean? I'm here to listen, develop those skills. And uh, the, the two biggest things are outreach and education. It's the same thing we've learned in the fire service. Yeah, you're big, strong people or very smart people. You still need the training. You still need to educate yourself and you need to practice. And that's right. what we learned from a, from a peer support <clears throat> standpoint. And when I started the Florian program, that was the number one thing that we had to infuse, just like that doctor out in Europe at the asylum. And we used peer support in that model with Florian. And other people, I think, are using that. If you're not, you should be. So when you say you were using the peer support model, what does that look like? How, how does that function? So when we started the program uh, at Rosecrans, Florian, we I researched peer support in the United States. Uh, one program was uh, came up, and that was Illinois Firefighter Peer Support. Yeah. And a lot of people know about it. it. It was a group of people, not by the state and not by the FFI, but a group of people that called it Illinois Firefighter Peer Support. I sat down with them and said, listen, I'm going to have first responders in our program. Would you be willing to come in for an hour once a week, share your story, and have a conversation with them? They're like, absolutely. That's it. One firefighter talking to another firefighter or one police officer talking to two, two peer supporters back in 1970 saved my dad's life when he was up on the second floor uh, asking for his gun and ready to take his own life. I was six years old and two guys came in, ran upstairs and got the gun away from him, saved his life. Right. Um, so yeah, it started in my life when I was a kid and I'm just supporting that. Uh, so somebody wanting to be a peer supporter now, I mean, even for my, myself, to, for clarification's sake, um, the 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 training that you go through trains you how to how to properly engage. I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. There's some basic principles. So 
the IFF, we created a two-day peer support. Tennessee, the state of Tennessee, uh, has a peer support uh, organization. If you go back to 1999, the president back then told the Surgeon General, let's have every state in the union have a suicide prevention alliance. Right. From there, some organizations created a peer support network. Tennessee was one of them. California was one of them. Illinois was a group of people not from the state, well, well from the state, but not from the state organization. And like now to Florida Collaborative, but it, it's starting to grow across the country. And really it's, The reason why we got involved in the fire service to help other people and peer support is again, one individual helping another individual from a certain skill set of listening, um, acknowledging, using all their active listening skills, and then really being a bridge to the direction that person wants to move in their life. Uh, I, I couldn't get my dad to stop drinking. I, I don't believe I could get anybody else to stop. But if they want to stop, I better have the resources and the availability to support them on that road. Right. And that's those are the skills that we help. Plus talking about things like suicide, substance use, and all that stigma around it. Not being afraid to have that conversation or get on a podcast or a roll call and go, you know what? Yeah, I'm in recovery or I've had OC. You know, I, I dealt with OCD or I dealt with suicide. We all don't, none of us are perfect. Well, I'll go along with that 100%. Does someone need to be trained in peer support to be a, a, a peer supporter, to provide that type of peer support? I think it would benefit them if they're going to be with an organized group to definitely get some training. That'd be like anybody could be a firefighter, but to be a good firefighter, you better get training, not just in the academy, but throughout your career. Yeah, I like, so, I like that. Um, I think anybody can be a peer supporter, but to be a, a good one, get some CEUs, right? Take hey. a lot of classes. What, what, what is the what, – what is the – in your experience, having seen as many people as you've seen, what is the main characteristic that makes a good peer supporter coming in, coming in the door? Yeah, it's funny because you could think about a lot of different things and the desire to want to help somebody else and willing to learn how to connect with them. Um, one of the things that Michael Judd says, right, is, is, uh, uh, I, I can't, remember the exact quote, but in a sense of is the, the desire to change and getting out of your own way. Yeah. So not thinking that you're the, your way is the only way, but willing to learn. Like if I was going to talk to you, it's not like I have any special skill. I have to learn more about Michael Laura to help Michael Laura than okay, yeah. I need to know about myself. And from a therapeutic standpoint, Rob knows this is that, Professors and teachers and other clinicians will say, well, meet the client where they're at. I'm like, what the frick does that mean? You know, uh, <laughs> it, 
it, it's it's really it's it's this, right? And, and look at look at sports, look at uh, Brock Purdy, right? The Mister Irrelevant, and now he's going to the Super Bowl. So the average uh, characteristics. I'm not looking for somebody that's you know six four. 240 pounds that can run down, run through a brick wall. I'm looking at for somebody that has a heart and desire and is not afraid to show some vulnerability and is willing to listen to somebody and not tell them what to do. Yeah. That, that's um, not in a, that, that's not in a, uh, application process. <laughs> <laughs> No, but it's it's definitely true. I mean, the same goes for mental health first aid that the give reassurance and information is is what you're not doing is giving people advice. You're telling you're you're creating a space for them to to share with you so that you can help them get to a place where they're ready to to do whatever needs to be done to get them wherever it is that they want to be. Last thing I'm going to talk to you about, last topic I got, unless Rob has something. Uh, how many, Rob, how many fire departments in the country? About. Oh, geez. Is it like 30,000, 30 something thousand? Yeah, I I wouldn't even venture a guess because I'm not even sure if you start counting up all the volunteer, the park paid. And I, I, yeah, maybe 30,000. How many, seems- how many? How many firefighters in the country do we know? Rough, roughly? Yeah, about 1.2 million. That's what I was thinking. 1.2 million. How many of those 1.2 million have given a keynote speech at FDIC? Oh, geez. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me. What was that like to give a keynote speech? Come on. I don't know if I'm ever going to have another keynote around here. You're, you, you, if if you're not the only one, you'd be the first. So the, the the best story is again was when Bobby Halton calls you up and you're having a conversation with him, and he says, "Hey, you're going to be the 2018 keynote address." And honest to God, is I, I don't know what right. Uh, both of my mom and dad's grave and soul is, is I said, no, uh, because it, it, it's, I sat in the stands. I remember sitting in the, in the back, in the middle, in the front, all over and going, how does anybody do that? I remember Bobby talking. How do you remember that stuff? How do you have the passion to do that? Who's going to stand up in front of 5,000 people, let alone that, eh, whatever. Uh, and, and I said, no. And he goes, no, you don't, you didn't hear me. I, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. And, and, and I kind of giggled and he goes, it's not funny. He goes, you got 10 months. And I'm like, ah. so uh, totally humbled, totally surprised. Uh, never something I thought of wanted to do. And again, these are things that sometimes I don't see my, my path all the time. Sometimes other people do. And so I spent 10 months writing and rewriting. I probably have 45 drafts. Uh, 
45 drafts that my wife tore to pieces. And <laughs> for somebody that has OCD like myself, and I think you probably got a little bit of it, Mike. I, I definitely say, do. I just, just say de- definitely do. You like to get it right the first time. And that's why I got mostly C's and C minuses on my written papers in college. Cause I just, I got them done at 1159 at night, but I spent the better part of 10 months writing and redrafting it and, and retooling it. And then for three months, you got to get a load of this is my wife had a overhead projector. We put it on the, on the wall in the basement. I wore shorts and I was wearing my class A shoes because they're, you know, how uncomfortable they are, (laughs) right? You got to walk up there for 20 minutes walking around, not thinking about anything other than what the hell you're going to talk about and don't screw it up. So I walked in my basement with my shirt, my shorts and my class A uh, uh, shoes reciting this uh, for uh, the better part, not, not, not every day, but off and on. And because I remember asking Bob, I go, how do you do that? He goes, I practice and I try to trick, pick my points. And so I did that. And I remember one day getting mad at my wife and I go, we do do it. One time she did it. She did it 10 times better than I did. Now you're and, using, te- you're using teleprompters though, no? So yes. You're not remembering I, this whole thing. On the stage, you have teleprompters, right? But you got to remember, you only get one practice the day before. So you get there and you're in the green room and you practice and then you go on stage and you practice. Right. Man, you're looking out and then at stand and the, 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 the audience with nobody there and your heart's pumping, your blood pressure's going, there's a few people listening to you. And I don't know if you ever heard the presentation. And I did it in front of my wife many times. And there was one piece she wanted me to take out, which was about me and her. But I said, I, I, I think I have, I have to do this. And, you know, I get choked up because I, I get ashamed about a little bit about who I am at times and what I did. But I knew I had to talk about this. So I'm doing the practice on the stage and I freeze and I'm crying for five minutes. I remember you telling me that story. Nobody really knows except a couple of people. Embarrassed, but then also being vulnerable. I mean, I bawled my eyes out. I couldn't get, I couldn't even breathe. And I'm like, these people are going to cut me from the show and tell Bobby (laughs) this guy, there's no freaking way he's going to do it. Um. Other than the fact that the teleprompter froze at one point, and if you ever want to watch that 20 minutes, try to figure out where it froze. Um, <laughs> swear to God, it, it, it froze, and I lost my pace. I lost my train of thought, and I ad-libbed for a second, and then it and then it picked up. And somebody said to me, they go, man, you really put some emphasis on this one section. And I said, you want to know what happened? You're like, yeah, tell me. I go, the teleprompter froze. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the stuff that happens in events like that. And so, uh, anyhow, so did it in very humble, I swear, swear that I, I took a, I took speech classes in college. 
And I remember doing a five minute speech and trying to fill five minutes. Like we've been talking for quite a long time here. And I've done half hour presentations, hours, two hours, but to do that 20 minute and put all that in there, I don't know if I'd ever want to do it again, but I'm glad Bobby trusted me and had me do it. Um, it wasn't something I would have chosen to do though. <laughs> I'll tell you this though, a year later, I'm at, at uh, FDIC again, and a guy comes up to me, and I'm like, oh boy, well, you, you never know, right? You don't know if it's going to be good, bad, what, you, what I say, you don't know what you're talking about, hey, you pissed me off. Crazy stalker uh, people. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, take me out to lunch because it took Michael Laura out, and... He goes, I want to tell you something. I sat in the audience during your keynote, and this has probably happened to many people. It's not just me. I'm nobody special. But he said, I went back home. I talked to my wife. I apologized for the way I behaved to her. And it's made all the difference in the world with my relationship with my spouse. We're more in love now, and I have more respect for myself. And I was like, wow. Here I was just trying to get through it, but it, I, I'm really glad I took the time to mold the presentation the way I did. I'm glad Bobby asked me to do it. I'm glad I think I did it well. And obviously I communicated it so it helped that person and his relationship with his spouse. And, and yeah. I'm sure there's more. Yeah. I'm sure there's more of those out there, Dan, believe me. So, and, and I've been, and I've now when I've sat there and listened to these other keynoters, most people have no idea the time and energy and the words, wordsmithing and yeah, just so much that goes on uh, behind the scenes. So um, yeah, it was pretty cool. I got three questions. Rob, you got anything you want to cover? No, I thought uh, this was a great episode. Uh, really enjoyed hearing your perspective on mental well-being. And uh, But ask your questions, Michael and Laura. Okay, number one, if there's a book or something you should read, what would you recommend? No, I don't know many books out there. Um I, I got a few here. I, I would say uh, Warrior SOS by Jeffrey Denning, because I used his quote in there, and I got to talk to him. Warrior, so Warrior SOS by Jeffrey Denning. And I'm, I'm actually, funny you should mention that, because I'm, I'm not a great writer, but I'm going to have a book done, but it's going to be done by people like you. So I'm going to ask a hundred people to write an article or a story. I'm not going to give it out because I don't want anybody to steal it. <laughs> uh, but that's my goal is to synthesize a book and I'm going to have some part in it. Um, not to, yeah. It's more about the people and lessons learned. I love that. Second question. Which character would you be in backdraft? 
So I almost was in backtrack. Uh, I I didn't want to ask it. I figured it would be cheesy. I figured I'd wait to the end. <laughs> Ke Kevin Casey is a stud and, and Northsider and uh, bigger than the, my basement walls. And I remember I, I, I interviewed with um, uh, Opie, uh, Ron Howard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was supposed to be the guy that drove the truck at night when uh, whatever, whoever jumped on the back of it or whatever. Yeah. And I didn't have my CDL license at the time. Come on. Oh. Could have been somebody. That, <laughs> by that much. All right. So I, that, get, get. So I, I, I don't think anybody in there. Um, who's, yeah, your, other who, than, who's your favorite character in Backdraft? Uh, the only thing, the thing I remember is, uh, what was it? Bull. You go, I go. That's the only thing. That's what I remember. <laughs> you go. I, I, I'd want that. You go, I go. And you thinking, go, we go. <laughs> yeah, you go, we go. <laughs> All right. Let, let, serious question. Last question. <laughs> that's fun. What would you recommend a new person do to have a healthy career from a mental wellness standpoint? Because you mentioned the reason why I'm asking that question, I wrote it earlier in the in the podcast. You said, "Take care of yourself." Well, what does that look like? How, what, what? Give me an actionable. What do you do? Yeah, I think you've got to be intentional. So I, I wish, kind of like, I, I I think that, and I think there's departments out there that are doing this. That as somebody comes in. There should be a mentor, not just an officer and not just a barn boss, but a mentor for that individual to cultivate them throughout, you know, their career. And that, that, that person should share with that individual, write down your goals for the year and see how many you attain. And then the next year, write down your goals. And then the next year and do that every year throughout your career. Um, I think we generally say, hey, we want to be the best fireman and we want to be an officer. I don't think we want to be the best officer. We want to be a good officer. But we should put down some qualitative and quantitative goals. I think sometimes we say it in our head, but we should have something written down so we could look back and go, oh, hey, I did this and I did this, but why didn't I do that? And then look at the reasons you didn't achieve that. Right. I, I Again, you're title of your show mentorship is 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 right on and i can't say that i was the best but i think we should do better through a mentorship program and have people develop their own goals rather than having like we have to throw up a ladder in 30 seconds um that's fine those are department goals right but the individual should develop their own goals themselves and not just from a physicality standpoint uh, or from a promotional standpoint. Um, and it could be as simple as, Hey, I want my resting heartbeat to be 84 instead of 89. Right. Well, we don't do that. I love that. Rob, I got 
I'm going to close this out, Rob. You got anything else for, for Dan? Just gratitude. Thank you for being on the show. Um, really enjoyed talking with you. And, um, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, well, it's, it's always humbling to be asked. And, uh, you know, we kid around in the beginning. It ends up being really serious because it's life or, life or death. It's our life, our lives. And it really should matter. I mean, again, from NFPA to NIOSH to OSHA, there are all these things to save lives and protect property. But are we really doing, and you guys are, with this show to focus on what's important? So uh, I appreciate you guys asking. I'm going to give you the last word, Dan. As the National Referral Relations Specialist for Recovery Ways, if you want to plug Recovery Ways, feel free to go ahead and do so. Hey, Recovery Ways are, are doing our is and are doing the right things from all specs of mental wellness. And if you want to know more, you give me a call, shoot me an email, ask Mike, ask Rob, they'll get you a hold of me. There's there's millions of people suffering all around us in, in, in our families, in the fire service and in all careers with mental health and substance use. The worst thing that we can possibly do is not have resources for them. And that's what I wanted to provide as the coordinator of local two ZAP, as a officer. If people don't wanna take it, that's up to them. Again, I couldn't get my dad to stop drinking. Right. But if you want a place that is doing the right thing and, and, and has a specialty program for first responders or for any career, give me a call or send me an email. Everybody, thanks for tuning in tonight to Mentors on Fire podcast. Thank you, Dan, for coming on tonight. Love you, brother. You're doing good things. Keep doing good things. And uh, we will see you on the next episode. If you want to get in touch with myself or Rob, reach out to M. Alora at Mentors on Fire podcast or R. Persley. And if you want to get in touch with Dan, Dan, one more time, your email. Yeah, dandegrice at gmail.com or give Mike a call. And before we tune out, I know you said uh, you love me, brother. I need a little bit more inflection in the voice. And does that mean that you're in, in love with me or you just love me? Because there's two different, that's two, two well, that, that, that's for another show. I think it's for another, it's for the post oh. show. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Night, everybody. See y'all.